Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm thrilled you can join us. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about trials and research and how do you get involved. But before we go there, I always like to do a shout out um, and to welcome people to the show. Many of you might be new. And so Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people. And I know how important that is because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years. Yep, you heard me right. 30 years. And I wanted to see change and decided to be part of the process to do that, to to connect people to services, products, and tools. So I know you will enjoy the show. People listen all around the world. And I hope you go ahead and subscribe and share this with your friends as well. If you have not heard of Dementia Map, please check that out. That is a wonderful tool where you can search 150 different categories, check out events, look at the glossary of terms, because there's so much we don't know uh, when we step into this world of dementia. And there's some wonderful articles. The site is growing all the time. And so feel free to use it. If you have suggestions of who should be in there, um, pass it along to them or pass it along to me. We are constantly growing and we want to be the best we can be there. So check out DementiaMap.com. For those of you looking for support, I do do a memory cafe twice a month, the second and the fourth Wednesday of the month at one o'clock central time. So that would be two o'clock Eastern, noon mountain and 11 a.m. Pacific time. Anybody around the world is able to join us. That is sponsored by Arthur Senior Care. Also, Brookdale North Oaks sponsors a Caregiver Connect. And in May, we're going to be meeting in person again where we can give respite care as well. And that is the last Wednesday of the month at 10 a.m. Central. So that's something you're going to want to be in Minnesota for uh, when we get together in person. And for those of you that are working in the field as individuals, you could win up to $5,000 or as a company up to $25,000 for work you've already done for innovation in dementia care. Go to modsawards.org. That's modsawards.org. And fill out your application. You only have till May 16th to get that in. They are also giving seed money of 50 to 100,000 for three new ventures. So check those out and see if that falls in your parameter as well. And then our friends from Dementia Map, uh, the Central Minnesota Dementia Community Action Network is doing a dementia summit, which is free online. And it's going to feature Dr. Dale Brennison. And this will give hope to a lot of people. There are so many people looking for alternatives there. Uh, So definitely check that out. That'll be May 12th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. You can also go in person. There might be a fee, though, I think, if there's lunch or something uh, with that. But you can check that out on their site. We're going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner as they talk about the foot bar walker. And then we'll be right back so I can introduce you to the fabulous Mike Splain. I love the foot bar walker. And let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. 
Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, we are back, and it's time to introduce Mike. Mike has been a thought leader in the community of dementia for years. In fact, he has been in the field of healthcare and long-term care since 1988, and he has a proven track record helping organizations achieve success in advocacy for health and long-term care issues. He is able to combine his deep knowledge of policy and program development and his management skills with with public speaking, community organizing, adult education, media strategy, and public health communications. In fact, Mike served on the public policy and advocacy staff of the Alzheimer's Association for over 20 years. So he's he's really been in the thick of things, very well connected and smart as a whip. And uh, I, I just love what we're going to be talking about today, recruitment and clinical trials. And Mike's doing a nice job taking a paintbrush and bringing new life to that and making it a little bit easier for people who are diagnosed and their families to participate. Well, Mike, I am so excited to have you here because the topic that we're going to be talking about, you know, getting people into research studies is so crucially important. And I think there is a lot of misunderstandings and people don't really know where to go. And so I'm really looking forward to to having this conversation with you. But before we start, I always like to ask all my guests if they have been personally touched by dementia in your own circle or family or friends. Well, I've been working with people with Alzheimer's in their family since 1986. Mm-hmm. And I'm a human, so mm-hmm. it would be hard not to be touched by that much um, direct contact with people and families and advocates. Uh, That said, I I was not part of that generation that started working in dementia because of a family connection, but very quickly thereafter, we've had our share. (laughs) Father-in-law, more than our share, father-in-law with vascular dementia, my wife's Nana with full-blown Alzheimer's disease uh, and others. So we've, we've had uh, we've had both. We've had a lot of mom care recently, but it's been mostly physical frailty and not cognitive frailty. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Well, let's start out talking about what is recruitment partners. That's something that you recently started and yeah. you know, I'd love our audience to know more about it. So Lori, I had a short 23 year career with the Alzheimer's Association <laughs> and 11 years ago, uh, I became an entrepreneur, or as I prefer to say, an Alzpreneur, mm-hmm. uh, an Alzheimer's entrepreneur and started my first small company called Splane Consulting. Um, but five years ago, five and a half years ago, a friend of mine, Dr. Jacobo Mincer, who is a geriatric psychiatrist and clinical trial researcher from Charleston, South Carolina, we've known each other our whole Alzheimer lives and have a lot of things in common. Jacob called up and he said, I finally have it where we can put your skills as a community developer and a political organizer to work with my skills in clinical research to come up with new models to get people involved in research. And that's what Recruitment Partners is. It's an essentially a better mousetrap business. We looked at an opportunity and the opportunity is this, that Alzheimer's is a large and growing problem. Our society through our tax dollars and through private investment is investing more and more in trying to find scientifically based treatments and care and support. And yet we have this gap between those visionary things and just the sheer number of people that we need to participate in all kinds of research. So we're opportunists, we're entrepreneurs. We took a beating during COVID because as you can imagine, uh, Clinical research of all kinds and clinical work of all kinds took a second a back seat, but uh, that's what it's all about innovation. Another theme that's really important to us is diversity. Uh, many of us have been watching, for example, the trials and tribulations, pun intended, 
of Agihelm and Medicare funding, uh, Medicare paying for Agihelm. Uh, it's a matter of record that in the phase three clinical trials, the trials that provided the evidence to decide whether or not this was a treatment that could be licensed, there were only three people of color. That's about the same number that were in the Aricept trial 25 years ago. And given genetics, given everything we know, uh, racial identity may make a very big difference in how people respond to treatment. So diversity, Jacob is originally Jacobo Mincer. Uh, he's from Argentina, and he speaks five languages, including some language that he and his wonderful wife, Olga, have invented that some mixture of, of Hebrew, Polish, and occasional Spanish swear words. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I think you're right. That is so important. And that's shocking when you when you say 25 years and not much has changed. And yet we've all seen the difference. We've seen the variables and, uh, you know, things definitely, definitely need to change with the diversity. So the um, National Institute on Aging, uh, to its credit, a couple of things. First of all, uh, the field recognizes that recruitment, the right kind of people for the right kind of study is really important. Second of all, the National Institute on Aging, which is the largest support, uh, taxpayer support for Alzheimer's and dementia research, has made uh, racial diversity in clinical trials their most important objective over the next five years. They're putting their literal money as well as their uh, knowledge to work. I just spent the last couple of days at a Latinos and Alzheimer's disease conference. And what was truly exciting was two things. First of all, there are only 10 men my age there. Mm-hmm. And the rest, uh, the other 145 people at the, were young women researchers in Alzheimer's disease who are Latino, Hispanic background. They were energetic, amazing. They're going to conquer this field. Uh, so the second thing about it was that it was giving special attention to this diversity theme and recruitment um, from another angle. And I think, you know, it's getting recognition, it's getting resources, getting momentum. So that's another thing that we're all about is enhancing the, the diversity. Wonderful. I think that's fantastic. Let's talk about the challenges facing Alzheimer's, you know, research today. I mean, we kind of went through the whole debacle, like you just said, with the with the last, you know, medication and, and things got real polarized, almost like our, our politics and stuff out there. But there's so many different levels, I would imagine, of challenges from the scientific side to the recruitment side to the really the understanding of the research that comes out of it. Sure. Well, I, I think I'll just stay focused on the recruitment. Uh, it's best estimates suggest 60 to 70,000 opportunities to participate in research in Alzheimer's disease are open on any given day around the world. Um, that's a lot of people, <laughs> but you yeah. need a lot of people you, to to demonstrate that something is safe, something's effective, something has outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, something that can be licensed and, and maybe even paid for by insurance organizations, whether they're public or private. Uh, all of that, uh, we, we talk about the number of persons participating in a study that we need an N, the number uh, large enough to power to show to demonstrate you you can't go to market with something that's been tested on 11 people in your backyard you mm-hmm. you, you can it's called fraud uh, but and people do it all the time there are many many interventions uh, that are out there on the market both care and support interventions substances there's any number mm-hmm. of you know, bootleg stuff out there. But if you want the real thing, you need to study it. You need a lot of people to volunteer. So, uh, so first barrier we think to participating in Alzheimer's research is not enough people affected by Alzheimer's, whether they're a family member or a person living with some for Alzheimer's or other form of dementia, know there are lots of different kinds of research. Mm -hmm. When we hear research, we almost immediately go to pills, we go to infusions, we go to lumbar punctures, they might hurt, or I don't want to radiate my brain. Uh, we Almost immediately, people think of the highest level curative mm-hmm. substances that are being tested in human beings on Alzheimer's disease. There's lots of kinds of participation in research. There's, we call a couch potato. 
There are surveys. There are registries. There are opportunities to put your saliva to work to help find answers. How hard would it be to spit in a tube, put it in a mailer with your, with your address on it? Mm-hmm. Um, there are caregiver studies. You know, we're trying to increasingly use the same scientific methods that we use to demonstrate devices or drugs have been through to prove their value and their worth. We're using those same methods now to test caregiver supports. Uh, and, and those caregiver supports are both on and offline. So first barrier, I think, is that just the lack of imagination about the many different kinds of participation opportunities there are. Well, I think that that is really important because I, what I have found, you know, I've been in this field since 2009. And when I stepped into this world, I was shocked at how everybody kind of wanted to fit in a box. There was a box for this and there was a box for that. And everything had really, really set parameters. And one of the things that, that I really felt was needed was creativity, you know, to give hope, to try different angles and stuff. Um, so I, I love that you said that. I'm also curious, you know, you mentioned numbers. Is there a typical number for a trial? Because I mean, I've seen really small to really big and I kind of shake my head and go, how can these be so different and then still come out with a, with a weighted value? You know, to me, that doesn't make sense. Well, my wife's the mathematician in the family, but I, I'm a math appreciator, so I'll, I'll, I'll try it this way. First of all, when we're talking about a, a drug or mm-hmm. a, a treatment substance or a device, the numbers of people that we get involved in that research increase at every step of that mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Drug trials in the United States and around the world generally go through, around the world, it's three phases, phase one, two, and three, and there's ever-increasing numbers of people uh, that are needed to volunteer for each of those studies. And in the United States, two phase two studies or phase three studies are needed before something can go to the FDA for approval. So at, at different parts of the research process, we need different numbers of people. Mm-hmm. A phase one trial, which is largely, uh, although there's good science and even experimentation animal models to demonstrate that a substance is safe. You still need eight or 10 human beings to be brave enough and thoughtful enough as volunteers to test a new substance in human subjects. Mm-hmm. So in phase one trial, you've got enough information about safety in a phase one trial from 10 to 20 people. Phase two, they can be big, they can be small, but we're trying to figure out the right dose. Mm-hmm. And so that might take a couple hundred people mm-hmm. and many, many sites. And then phase three, you know, we've seen some we work on. Uh, we worked on one that uh, recruited 600 people uh, across the world. Uh, we work on, working on another one. We just signed up for another trial that we're going to start supporting in June. Uh, that might recruit as many as 2,000 people. Part of the reason you have such vast numbers is because people drop out, Mm -hmm. right? If you're testing a substance for three years, people's thinking changes, their disease state changes, their interest changes, Mm -hmm. their capacity to get to a research center changes. So you have this this phenomena called attrition Mm -hmm. uh, and retention in clinical trials is an area where we consult as well because how do you keep that volunteer spirit going, mm-hmm. particularly because when we're in a phase three trial, that final trial, we are frequently doing something called a double blind placebo control trial. What does all that mean? <laughs> it means that some people get a treatment drug and some people get a sugar pill mm-hmm. because we have to show that if there is a change, that it's actually due to the active substance that people are getting. And that frustrates people when they think they're not, sometimes when they don't think they're not getting the treatment. Yep. Yep. But that's, you know, that's part of the process. And to me, that makes total sense. And everybody hopes that they'll, you know, they'll get the treatment. But again, you need both sides in order to, to make this happen. Um, you know, you had mentioned there's all different types of, of research products, um, projects going on from different types of, of treatments and, and pharma. Is there any, you know, non-pharma programs going on or research? Oh, sure. No, we, we're supporting a, a couple of studies right now. There's a study called 
leaf uh, that uh, we've posted on dementia, uh, dementia map. Mm -hmm. uh, leaf is a psychoeducational mm -hmm. intervention for caregivers. Mm -hmm. And it's delivered online. So mm -hmm. not only are we recruiting online, but people participate online. It's an adaptation, obviously, that started with COVID, but that's because people like online learning and mm -hmm. online education. It's continuing. Uh, we have another, another study that's for uh, a person with dementia and a caregiver called Moving Together. It's trying mm -hmm. to demonstrate whether or not Increased physical activity, even post-diagnosis, is both good for the person with dementia and the caregiver. So those are, you know, those are a couple of examples of, and as I said, we're putting this, these caregiver interventions, these caregiver supports through some of the same level of testing that we do for drugs. And therefore, we should see them as reliable, sometimes called evidence-based, that, that, mm -hmm. that we can rely on them. You know, I, I started working with the Alzheimer's world at a time when, you know, as, as Mr. Stone, the founder of the Alzheimer's Association, uh, was still very active in those days. He found five paragraphs about Alzheimer's disease in one medical text in 1980 when he was trying to find answers for his wife, who had his first wife, who had Alzheimer's disease. And so this field has emerged very, very rapidly. But, you know, we, for a long time, we went on the wisdom of caregivers. Mm -hmm. Now we're trying to go with a little more scientific method. But that wisdom from caregivers still counts an awful lot, too. It's where these uh, interventions come from, where the imagination about different kinds of interventions come from. I like that the, the research is expanding regarding that. Why don't we talk about the process of participating? And I'll just start out by saying, you know, some of the things that, that I have heard from people is, you know, we went, like you had said, there was kind of a natural, you know, attrition where people started and then maybe it wasn't what they thought it was going to be, or they, they went through the process. The number one thing that I hear from people is we were really excited about this and we were interviewed a couple of times. And then at the very last minute, we weren't a fit. And I say we, because they look at themselves, the, the, the person with dementia and the care partner, they kind of look at it as a team effort of going through that process. And to me, that's kind of been the number one frustration of people wanting to be able to cut through the chase earlier on to kind of know, am I going to be a fit or not? If, if I have diabetes and that's an issue, then let me know that right up front instead of stepping me, you know, through a couple of things and get my hopes up. There's a lot to unpack there, Lori. Uh, of course there is. <laughs> so let's, let's start with one uh, difficulty in enough people participating in research. Mm -hmm. And that is that in the United States, only about 40% of people living with Alzheimer's or a closely mm -hmm. related disorder have a, have a diagnosis in their medical record. Mm -hmm. Of the people who have a diagnosis in their medical record, a third have not been told. So let me try this is terrible thing. My wife, my, my wife will shoot me. I'm full. My life is full of women. <laughs> so having said that, so Lori, mm -hmm. in the United States, only 40% of women with breast cancer get a diagnosis and a third of them don't get told. That's really the stakes we're talking about here. Yep. So you talk about barriers. One major barrier is that we are still at a point where um, where the medical community is ambiguous or ambivalent or by their behavior demonstrated that they're disinterested in mm -hmm. cognitive health, mm -hmm. despite the fact that every public opinion poll says that people over the age of 55 are more afraid and concerned about their thinking and about cognitive health than any other health issue, including cancer. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, having said that, um, you know, there's an, uh, the, the screening process. So if somebody wants to volunteer for a study, ideally, they find a study and they make a phone call or send an email 
uh, having been through some, we set up pre-screeners. Mm-hmm. So any study that we're supporting, we set up an online pre-screener. We also, for some studies, provide a personal navigator where we actually have one of our team. You've met Kate, Kate yep. Gill, who I'm very proud of because she's also my kid. Uh, so she's in family business, as we say now. Uh, we, we have personal navigation to help people through those early steps, particularly in really complex trials. So I'm going to ask you a quick question right there, because I think it's important to people, because sometimes the the navigators are, you know, just chatting with you on the box. Are these people that you talk to on the phone, which people feel much more comfortable with or can meet in person? Oh, uh, we use phone. We use phone Uh, for one trial. We may even deploy. Uh, geriatric uh, skilled and experienced Mm -hmm. geriatric care managers to -hmm. do some of this navigation because geriatric care managers are those magicians that help families and individuals locate, arrange, and manage care Mm -hmm. and support. And this is just a natural add-on to their role. So every clinical trial, every test of a device, a drug, uh, taking a survey, Mm -hmm. every clinical research item in the United States is governed by a prime directive of human subject protection. In fact, all of my team, and we're just involved in recruitment. I mean, even my web designer and my, uh, my brilliant Catherine, who does a lot of our Facebook work uh, and social media work, even Catherine has taken the basic good clinical practice course and has passed the exam that she knows the rudiments of human subject protection. Mm-hmm. So the first question is, you know, the, the first question that comes to mind is, is if you have that frame of mind of human subject protection, when you make an inquiry about a study, you will be asked a series of questions, hopefully early on, that determine whether or not you can be, meet the inclusion or exclusion criteria for a study. Mm-hmm. what inclusion means the people we want exclusion means the people we don't want um those are public they're you know they should be posted on a website for study the government keeps track of them on clinicaltrials.gov. uh they're easily found on tools like the alzheimer's associations uh trial match, you can find the inclusion and exclusion criteria, do your own searching and say, well, I'm too old, I'm too young, I have diabetes, um, I'm not mobile, uh, I'm not fluent in English, you can find inclusion and exclusion criteria. So that's the first, I I guess, let's think of this as a a race. That's Mm -hmm. the first part of the first step in the race. And then a a coordinator will then ask for medical permission to see medical records Mm -hmm. and get more deeply into the study. The trick is some studies for very complex compounds, we're working on a study right now that the screening, this is what's called the screening period, will probably go six months. Mm -hmm. And that's a long time to, as you say, not know whether you're in or out. What we try to do, because I think recruiting for one trial is dumb, Mm-hmm. What we try to, excuse me, bad business. What we try to do is we try to stack trials. Mm-hmm. So right now we're working on a trial that very much cares that the caregivers are taking care of somebody who has a clinical diagnosis of only Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're supporting another trial, a study of music and memory, interestingly, that doesn't care what the dementia comes from. Mm-hmm. So we've designed our screener to say, has your mom or dad or you had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease? Mm-hmm. If no, we divert them to the trial that doesn't care what the kind of dementia it is. Okay. So we're trying to stack trials. And I think this is an innovation that's unique to us and to the sites that we work with because Stephen Post, the great Alzheimer's ethicist, will tell you. I assume you've met Stephen and read his book. Oh, yeah, he's been on the show. He's going to be on again in June, I think. And book, new books out. Bless him for getting it done again. Um, Stephen says that, you know, the ethics here are that you want to treat people right, but the ethics of Alzheimer's disease are unique in that almost everybody signs up 
because they think it'll help somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's an altruistic act. It is a love of neighbor act because there's very little hope, particularly for people diagnosed, there's very, very little hope of reversing damage that's already been done to the brain. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, we don't want to kill that altruism. We don't want to kill that spark. So what we try to do is say, well, rejected for one, here's another option. Or this one's got a very narrow gate. Here's one that's a little wider. Or, gee, you can't do a clinical trial because you live in North Dakota, but maybe you could try something that's online. We try to give people a menu. I love this stacking idea. This is brilliant because exactly what you're saying is people do, they get burnt out, they get depressed, and they're like, I just, I can't go through this process again. I don't want, I just, I don't want to, it, it takes so much out of, you know, both the person diagnosed and their care partner, if they're assisting, um, because it really is a hopeful process. And um, some people will say, uh, and they've, I've heard this from many, uh, we feel used. We feel like it wasn't an honest process. And I said, well, I don't think it was that. I think it's just that it's a complicated process and it's it's a matter of communicating differently. Well, yeah. And I think that's, I think it's communicating differently. Uh, We'll never, you, you know, interestingly, people are still using the word subject when Mm -hmm. they talk about a research participant. Yep. Uh, Kings and popes have subjects. You know, I'm Irish Catholic. I, 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 don't, I don't care for kings uh, and I don't care to be considered a subject. Um, and I think it's if you use words like participant, um, that's much more. And you start to see that's the progressive side of Alzheimer's research. You see people treating, treating them a little bit better. But, you know, there's there's bad treatment of people all over medicine. I mean, there's people that have nightmare experiences but i think it's explaining the process Mm -hmm. offering people options uh if they get rejected for a trial uh we think good practice is to tell people why they why they were rejected and above all we need to to thank people but you know (laughs) can i tell stories i could tell stories lori yeah so a disordered universe Mm -hmm. is a consultant's playpen How's that? <laughs> yep. You can quote me. And <laughs> part of what we do is we secret shop. Mm-hmm. So we will test our, these are people we have contracts with to deliver participants and research. We will call their phone numbers. We will test mm-hmm. their websites. Mm-hmm. We'll do on sites. Jacobo is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mincer is brilliant at going to a site from the parking lot in finding what he calls all the barriers to people being involved in research at that site, Mm -hmm. everything from there's no darn parking. Mm -hmm. How do you drop a person in the middle stages of Alzheimer's disease off at the front door, park your car, go back. I mean, come on, people are going to hope they're there when you get there. hope they're there. Or (laughs) so everything from the parking lot in Dr. Mincer and some of our other associates will go in and do a site visit and it will sit down in great detail and say, this is what we experienced and it's mm-hmm. not acceptable because this needs to be like, you know, this needs to be a, a, not only a comfortable and safe experience, but it needs to put the participant in the center. So we're, we, we test what's going on out there and it sounds mundane, uh, but one trial we worked on Uh, we found a number of sites that had zero parking. This was for people with moderate to severe disease. And we went back to the sponsor. We work for the sponsors. We, and we went back to the sponsor and said, this is crazy. Do you know, within 48 hours, they had a contract in 30 countries with a company called Boston limousine and provided door to door transportation for the person and caregivers for anybody that needed it to get rid of this parking problem. I mean, this is the kind of impact that thinking about the participant can have. So we we're we're pretty good about that. And you know, and there are things that are just they're just off putting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when you walk into a clinic and there's no signage, you walk into a clinic and the security guard yells to another security guard seventy five feet away, Hey Mel, where do we send the people with dementia? Great. Yeah. A little bit of confidentiality, a little bit of respect. I mean, 
uh, those kind of things really, really matter. And those are the things that have people turn on, turn on their heel and just walk away. So we're trying to knock that kind of crap out of the study process if we possibly can, because the rest of it's hard enough. Yeah, I, I, you know, I loved when um, I loved everything you said there. And I loved, you know, the, the company, the sponsor going, we can fix that, you know, because I was thinking of valet service, you know, for them to drop their car off, but, but door to door, how much easier, you know, and I would say the only added thing you'd want is you would want those drivers to be somewhat educated with what they're dealing with in the car as well, you know, um, because that can come about. And when you, when you talked about words and and the use of subject, I was, I was kind I made a note to myself, actually, when you were talking about, um, oh, what the heck was it? Now I can't remember the subject protection. And I'm like, well, human subject protection is the law name of the law. Yep. Yep. And, you know, and I get, I, I can get why it's there, but it just sounds so clinical and people want, you know, they're coming, they're coming kind of from a heart space to, to make this change. And I think that needs to be elevated during the process from the, the look of the warmth of a website, because some of them can be really cold and just black and white um, to even the words of inclusion, exclusion. You know, one of the things we say on Dementia Map is people don't know what they don't know. So if they don't know to look for those words, they would look probably for, do I qualify, you know, and, and, and maybe them, it's yeah. on there like that. One of the most fun things that I, that we do as a company to, we, we, you know, we partner with trusted community-based organizations mm-hmm. in the lives of people with dementia, mm-hmm. adult day centers, assisted living home care agencies. Uh, We work with them to be the promoters of participation in clinical trials, Mm -hmm. people in positions of great trust, um, because it's, it's, it's very infrequently the non-specialized doctor that's going to mention participating in research. Mm -hmm. And even then they mostly talk about the highest level of clinical research if they talk about it at all. And one of the things that we do with our community partners, we've developed and we've refined a really fun webinar called Who Me? A -hmm. Brain Research Volunteer. In fact, it's rotating right now. The next one we're doing is rotating on Dementia Map because it's on the evening of May 4th. But it's been really fun to kind of peel back the curtain and explain to people that not only there are lots of different kinds of research mm-hmm. and they're all meaningful and, and helpful to the overall human movement that is doing something about dementia, but they also, uh, we also need lots of different kinds of people mm-hmm. we need. And, and maybe that's one other message I just leave your listeners with is we need healthy people. We need people that with diagnosed Alzheimer's disease. We need caregivers that are stressed and not stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need different kinds of people in terms of, I already mentioned, uh, cultural and racial diversity, huge issue. Um, I do a lot of work in my original consultancy. The last three years been doing a lot of work with the American Indian and Alaska Native community. You may have noticed uh, in the news about four weeks ago, there was a finding that APOE4, the, that that genetic marker the gene we're all scared of yeah the gene we're all scared of having two of works differently and people that are american indians isn't that diversity counts so i i think that we need to be thinking about those things that it's we need lots of different kinds of people uh people with disease people without the disease long distance and in-home caregivers uh people that are fluent in english people that are not uh, we need lots of different kinds of people to participate. I love that. And I love your webinar. And I, I, one of the, the title alone, you know, me, I could, I could be this person. It's kind of like, you know, the big studies that were done of why aren't caregivers, you know, care partners, care companions, why don't they recognize themselves as those terms? Cause they're a wife. Because it's my mom. And so I think the same thing is happening within the trials people don't why me how me you know how can i be helpful um even you know i'll say like again another correlation kind of on dementia map is people will say well i I don't have a resource you know i'm just a person living with dementia 
you have a great blog, you've created a Facebook group, you know, or a care partner. And but people don't see themselves as that. And so I think yeah. it, I think that webinar is really yeah. important to help. Expand. You know, you, I, the first caregivers manuals mm-hmm. were written by collecting the wisdom of caregivers into some form of manual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was not it didn't come from science. <laughs> it came from that heart, as you say. Yeah, I, I have to thank Dr. Crystal Color, who's a colleague in the field. Oh, she's runs, wonderful. Yeah, she runs uh, the Brain Health uh, Institute. Well, it's called the yeah Brain Health Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, does a lot of online education, but Crystal came up with that title. So I gotta I gotta give props where props are due. Uh, she came up with that title and we, we debuted that with her mm-hmm. brain health week, a couple, maybe six months ago. So. Oh, bright, wonderful. Bright gal. That's, that's great. Um, you know, I think this is just such an important issue. One of the questions I wanted to ask you too, with this kind of stacking that you're doing with people, once somebody applies, are they always in your system? So if it, something new comes in, you can reach out if they meet the criteria. No, we're we're not conducting research, so we're 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 very ephemeral. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, we're we're neither insured nor licensed to do the you know to to have that kind of registry. There are registries. I mean, the banner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Institute in Phoenix. There are a number of brain health and research registries where people can sign up. In fact, I happen to have polycystic kidney disease, uh, mm-hmm. which is genetic, and I'm a member of a polycystic kidney disease registry, and I get surveys like every month about you know, my pain, my living, or, you know, whether or not my creatinine's going west. So mm-hmm. uh, there are those kind of registries. We're not that. Okay. I was just thinking, because that was another thing, you know, that I would hear, hear from people is, uh, then we have, A, we have to find out about them, and they're not always easy to find out about, which I know that's part of your, your whole thing is to make those more visible and easier to find. But just going through that application process, and if there was a way to be able to keep that information with you, and as, as, as a new thing came up, just, you know, tickle them through that would well, be a huge, huge benefit except, uh, to families. Except things change. And that and and so they're in the field, mm-hmm. you know, including people that are very impressive that are from your home state. Uh, in the field, there is the belief that we could create registries that are trial ready. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we've got blood we've got blood type we know where they live we know what their diagnosis is but alzheimer's is and alzheimer's caregiving is dynamic mm-hmm. you know um and so to assume that somebody that filled out a registry questionnaire a year ago mm-hmm. upon getting a email back even if they remember that they filled out the paperwork for a registry mm-hmm. that they're ready to present themselves to participate in a full-blown clinical trial just because they signed up in a registry a year ago is a little bit presumptive. Uh, We find it takes, actually, we're actually working with Sinai in New York on a project right now to go back to people that have donated biological specimens uh, for one form of research Mm -hmm. to see whether or not they can become interested in another form of research. That trail is cold. Mm-hmm. Even after only three or four months, that trail is cold. People forget that they gave a little blood sample when they had their, uh, when they visited their cardiologist for the benefit of research. They completely forgotten. A quarter of the people we've been calling have completely forgotten they ever participated in research because okay. they didn't see it as research. So I think that's the other part of it is you just can't assume that everything stays status quo in the life of a person with dementia and, or and their I family. Think that- I think that's a good point because I think I think of people who sign up for maybe a senior living and they'll, they'll sign up for 12 of them and they but they always know they can say no, you know, if they're right. not ready yet. Um, so, you know, that's one philosophy. But the the other issue that I hear from people, um, which kind of ties into they didn't even remember that they were part of this study was so many of them say we'd like to hear the results or something. It doesn't have to be fine-tuned, but a lot of people say we were part of this, but we never, we don't know if they even did anything with any, 
any you know what we participated in yeah it's 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 a big sin in all research mm-hmm. um and i think uh, particularly we're talking about some of the work we're doing with communities of color mm-hmm. uh, if you don't take a community-based participatory research approach and honor a commitment the most successful recruiter of black persons into alzheimer's research is the best reporter about what happened to that to their participation in their community and they have just such trust um we're we're part of we're part of a uh, National Institute on Aging funded project to test new models of working with communities of color. And that's principle number two is uh, we got to report to people about what happened with their participation. And it, we're just not built that way. You know, journals don't publish negative studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's been a lot of negative studies. And and it's not just in drugs. I mean, there's a lot of studies that just don't work out. So we we're big believers in making sure there's a feedback loop. Yeah. Is that, would you say that that's because they're worried about getting sued, even though you sign 10 million disclaimers, I'm, I'm sure up front when you, when you go into a study, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Cause I, you know, I'm one where I've kind of thrown failure to the curb and I just look at it as a lesson learned to help me move forward. I mean, that's, that's how I frame things. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never studied it. I've never asked about it. I just do it, do what I do differently. Mm-hmm. Make sure people know what it's the same thing. You know, a long time ago, I was you know, developing the advocacy network of the mm-hmm. Alzheimer's Association. And I knew if I was going to get grassroots people involved in advocacy, trying to reach out to their members mm-hmm. of Congress or their state legislators, I knew we had to report to people what happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. that just builds on itself. It builds its own momentum. It's just community organizing 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But sometimes researchers don't, understand that they are part of an ecosystem big well, yeah. For community yeah they kind of spin in a, in a different world the other thing um you know I, I appreciate you know persons of color and us learning that lesson that we have to communicate to them but i think we are in a world right now where everybody distrusts just about any any national institution <laughs> there is and i think it has to you know we have to be able to to fold that out to everybody and, um, and, and give them feedback. Uh, I think that's really, really important because then they feel like they have a vested interest. They weren't just a Guinea pig. They were, they were somebody important enough to report back to, you know, and, and honor in that. Um, You could never get away with that with tribal people because mm -hmm. they are sovereign. Mm -hmm. And if you, conduct research or surveys with uh, American Indians, they own the data mm-hmm. and they will make sure you know it. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's very interesting, but I think it's, it's the attitude. It's, it's an attitude of uh, being willing to share failures as well as successes that I think yeah. is part of the problem here too. Yeah. I, it's kind of reframing that. I mean, rarely does someone succeed on the first first time out of the gate if they're really good at their job they're looking at still we could have improved this we could you know the general public thought it was great but there's always ways to improve i do want to ask you one other question on the clinical trials and that is who who benefits from the results you know and and how are they impacted by that well i think who benefits are the consumers of tomorrow i, mm-hmm. I think there's very uh, it's very hard to find direct benefit in uh, all kinds of clinical research for people that are in a condition today. So I think it's 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 possibly it may not be the next generation, but it's almost always future focused. So I think then the rest depends on dissemination. The rest depends on this mystery of translating clinical trial results into into medical or clinical practice. Mm-hmm. And it's an area that's gotten an awful lot of attention because it's a long wait to go from clinical trial from bench to bedside. And that's a theme at the National Institutes on Aging, the National Institutes on Health generally is how do we translate what we've learned more rapidly into clinical practice once it's learned and proven. Uh, folks are trying to cut that down, but I think there are dissemination steps as well as behavior. And it's also the science of behavior change. 
-hmm. I mean, if I learned how to do cataract surgery one way, and I've been doing it that way for 15 years, and somebody comes out with a better model, you know, we, we all resist change, Lori. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we say we love, we say we love change, but we really don't. We hate change. So I think that's part of it is this whole mystery of, uh, of clinical trial, uh, converting it into actual action in medical and clinical medicine. And, you know, it, ta- it just, it takes time to disseminate. Uh, it takes an education process. Uh, and it takes willingness to be open to new ideas. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's hard, to, that's hard to find. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, we thank you for what you do and for Dementia Map and the opportunity to use Dementia Map to reach people. And I think that's the best way to find out about the studies we're supporting right now is okay. go to Dementia Map and use it well. We'll Appreciate do this again. Okay. All righty. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Well, for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that conversation, and I would love you to check out all the trials on Dementia Map. That is what Mike said is the best way to get a hold of them. But if you want to talk to somebody, you can call Recruitment Partners as well, and that number is 443-741-1696, extension 703 or you can email Jennifer at J and then her last name is V-A-S-C-O-N-C-E-L-L-O-S at Recruitment Partners, that's plural, LLC.com. And of course, if you have any questions, please reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. Until next time, have a blessed week, everyone. Bye now. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.